0: At the end of the year, I go through a reflection process and it is a mix of goal setting for the next year and also trying to come up with ideas or concepts that I want to be super aware of.
1: Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus and joined, as always, by my good friend and colleague, Brad Stolberg. Brad, what's going on, my man?
0: Not so much, Steve. Great to be back from a little hiatus from uh, the podcast and the newsletter. And really excited to be kicking off the new year with a discussion of some of the concepts that are most on our minds heading into 2023. Oh, yes. New year, new us. Just
1: kidding. We're the same old people bringing you stuff that actually works without the nonsense and the way that we get to do that is by not having sponsors to this podcast newsletter so that we don't have to you know buy some crazy supplement that promises the world and pitch it to you because you know most of that stuff doesn't work. Instead, what we have to support our work, you can join our Patreon, which is at www.patreon.com slash the growth equation. And if you join, you get all sorts of good stuff, like a monthly book club, you get an Ask Me Anything, you get, you know... Um, sign copies to our new book, which we'll have one in the pipeline coming up later this year. So if that sounds interesting, you get that, all sorts of other stuff. Join on in, patreon.com slash the growth equation.
0: I like how you tied in that, uh, that, that promo for the Growth EQ's Patreon. Well done. You forgot one thing, my favorite part. It's as little as the cost of a latte I know this because I drink fancy coffee, and uh, inflation has impacted the fancy coffee, but it has not impacted membership to the Growth Equation community. So check us out on Patreon. And uh, with that, Steve, let's dive into today's conversation. At the end of the year, I go through a reflection process, and it is a mix of goal setting for the next year and also trying to come up with ideas or concepts that I want to be super aware of as I live my life. And by bringing awareness to these ideas and concepts, at least in theory, it allows me to wrestle with them more, both intellectually and then, of course, with my own skin in the game to see what they do to me as a person. So the three things that I want to start off by talking about before we go to what's most on your mind is this notion of balancing acceptance for who you are and where you are on the one hand with progress and wanting to achieve on the other. Taking the work seriously, taking our work seriously, probably more seriously than we have, to be honest, but continuing not to take ourselves seriously and exploring how to do that. And the third thing that I want to talk about is my New Year's resolution or my goal, which is to implement and adhere to a digital Sabbath. So those are the three big things on my mind, Steve. Where do you want to start? You know, let's start with something
1: that I actually did a little bit, not fully, but over the holidays kind of reset, which is that that digital Sabbath.
0: All right. So I first heard of this idea a long time ago from a venture capitalist named Brad Feld. Great name. Don't know Brad. Uh, But one of my longtime coaching clients, Blake, sent me a podcast, I don't know, four years ago and said that, you really would dig this, and I think you're going to like a lot of this guy's ideas. And one of his ideas was this notion of a digital Sabbath, which for Brad Feld simply meant that from sundown on Friday night to sundown on Saturday night, he was completely off of all of his digital devices. This allowed him to recharge, it allowed him to be more present for the other things in his life, and it allowed him a break from so much of the constant novelty and stimulation that we all live with, including myself. So I put that idea in the back of my head is, huh, I'd like to try it. And then I kind of forgot about it. We're early in our career, we're launching books, we're increasingly reliant on our internet community, this podcast, our newsletter, our social media following to share our message and to spread it. And a lot of people are online over the weekend. I also had my first kid and then my second kid and a German shepherd puppy and a lot of things. And it just seemed like there wasn't enough time for a digital Sabbath. And um, I think there should have been. I think it hurt me. I think I have gotten a little bit too sucked into the the constant stimulation of the internet of digital devices. So just about a few weeks ago, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts, The Ezra Klein Show, and Ezra Klein talked about how he was going to implement his own version of a Sabbath this year. So I talked to my wife about it, and I want to get into the particulars of how this is going to work. And her main concern was that we've got this newborn child We've got all kinds of um, sporting events for our older son and drama club and music and all the activities that he does. We've got errands to run. While it's nice to think that we can celebrate Sabbath where we really shut everything down and we stay in our home all together as a family, it's probably not realistic. And my wife wants to be able to reach me. So if I go on an errand, if I go to Target or something, God forbid something happens, she wants to be able to reach me. So... It's not rocket science. I bought a burner phone. I paid $121. I bought a phone from the company Lively. It is a phone that is meant for senior citizens. It has a fall alert on it. I got my own new phone number and I get 200 minutes a month to use my burner phone. It doesn't get the internet. I don't think I can text message on it. So, what I'm going to do is during my digital Sabbath, I'm going to have Caitlin, my wife, hide my iPhone and hide my computer and then she's going to give it back to me when the period ends. The other little tweak that I made after consultation with Caitlin was instead of doing it from sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night as a traditional Sabbath is done, I'm going to do it from 9 a.m. Saturday morning to 9 a.m. Sunday morning. The reason for this is twofold. One, from a self-serving purpose, a lot of people don't have a digital Sabbath, and they're not as addicted to the internet as me, so perhaps they don't need it, and they're online on sun, or excuse me, on Saturday. So I want to be able to post some content before I start my Sabbath. The second more important reason, because in theory I could schedule that stuff, is uh, I don't think it would be good for me to get all my devices back on Saturday night. Because whatever we're doing as a family, or if I'm on a date with Caitlin, will immediately be ruined because I'm going to want to dive in. So we came to this agreement that I'll have my burner phone, my Shabbos phone, and um, we're going to do this from Saturday 9 a.m. to Sunday, ideally like Sunday at noon. I'd like the extra time in the morning, and uh, see how it goes. So that's that's my digital Sabbath plan, and I and I think it's a really viable idea for a lot of people.
1: Leave it, leave it to Brad to take it to the nth degree where we now have a burner phone. I I you know maybe I need access to this burner phone. What happens if I have a crisis, Brad, and I've got to call you?
0: You call Caitlin, and Caitlin determines if it's a crisis or not.
1: Uh, Okay, so you got it. So let me let me expand on this um, a little bit because I've actually played around with this off and on through the years. Gosh, maybe four or five years ago, um, I called it. I I went through a streak of having um, random days be what I called live like it's the 1990s again. Which essentially anything that was around, you know, in the nineteen nineties, I allowed myself to do, but anything beyond that I didn't. So that took away most of the stuff that kind of gets in the way digitally while still allowing me to use my phone to call people if I needed. And I, I I found value in that, but I was doing that when I was, you know, younger and single and could just turn off the world for a while. But that more recently, what happened, as Brad knows, is my good old uh, MacBook got destroyed. Mainly, I think, because of my dog, Willie, you know, getting too excited watching YouTube videos and taking his very hefty nose and breaking the screen. But I was without it for about four days. And what I decided to do was essentially, I was like, well, I'm without my computer. So this is a good time to kind of have this digital break. So what I did is I just, besides, I did allow myself to text and call um, because I see that as communication and I'm not too worried about that. But I didn't go on uh, social media on my phone or anything on my phone like that. Um, I just scheduled some stuff beforehand to go out on social media, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff, and then just read books for like three days. And it was great. And I loved it. And I think there's something refreshing to that. And in particular, I, te- I did that for a simple reason because I'm moving from a little bit of like all in social media marketing after do hard things to getting more to consuming ideas and reflecting. And in order to get in that headspace, I needed to clear my head out of all that junk. And there's actually some wonderful research. Um, I think. In the research they call it the the three day effect, which is essentially go outside in nature and camp for three days and your kind of brain resets because it's not overstimulated. I don't think again we have to go to that extreme, but I think in the small sense we can kind of utilize that by taking away the main culprits of our kind of digital craziness, which is, you know, social media going down YouTube rabbit holes, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah, the other thing that I'm going to do, um, because I want it to be, like on the one hand, it's about, yes, disconnecting from the internet and text messaging and being on the phone all the time. But on the other hand, I also want there to be a lot of positive to it, right? I don't just want to take this thing that's bad away. I want to fill it with a lot of good. So I'm hopeful that what it will lead to is um, just like increased mental, psychological presence For my family, for myself, for the books that I'm reading, for the things that I'm thinking about. And something that I really love is listening to music. And you can't get music on the burner phone, right? It's just a phone, there's no Spotify. So I'm also thinking of investing in a cheap record player and then having like, you know, 10 to 12 records of just like my favorite music. So I'd have like my favorite dispatch album. I'd have a Leonard Cohen album. Um, I'd probably have a Bob Dylan album, Sarah Borellis, I'd have your album. And uh, it's like really this ritual around like, yeah, you could be like, well, you're you, first off, it is somewhat privileged or fortunate, whatever word you want to use that I can afford a record player. And it's like it's this slowness, it's this disconnection, It's this routine and it's this ritual. And I'm more excited about that, to be honest, than getting off the internet for a day.
1: You know, whatever floats your boat, man, go play the record players. You and uh you can you can groove out with our parents generation who has record players. Um, or the, you know, hipsters who go buy that stuff. So
0: go for All it. All right. Yeah, something like that. Before Steve attempts to rib on me anymore, let's move to my second idea, which is this notion of balancing acceptance and progress. And I wrote about this a little bit in the Practice of Groundedness in the chapter on accept where you are to get where you want to go. Um, but the quote that first comes to my mind is from the mid-20th nineteen excuse me mid century uh, humanistic psychologist Carl Rogers. He said, it, it is only when I accept myself as I am that I'll begin to change. And I've been thinking a lot about that, you know, the past two years, and maybe it's just a coming of age, it's maturity, it's having kids. I've been really trying to become a better friend to myself. And I think a big part of wisdom is becoming your own best friend. And I've worked on that and that's felt really good. But what I don't want to let go is the striving for progress. And I think that like the Jedi level skill set here is being to accept who you are, who I am really fully, including our idiosyncrasies, including the parts of ourselves that perhaps we wish weren't so, on the one hand, but then on the other hand, still be like really hungry and try to improve and try to get better and hold both of those competing ideas at once. So the sports analogy for you, Steve, would be if an athlete is on the start line of a race and they're totally content with their career, yet they can still turn it on and try to like run their ass off to have their best race ever and, and compete fiercely. That athlete probably does a really good job because they're not they're not doing it from a place of fear. They're just like free. And um, is I get older, I want to try to like spend more of my working life in that position than over-indexing on self-compassion, but also over-indexing on like the progress self-discipline. Yeah, I call
1: that ability flipping the switch. Right, you've got to be able to, in that moment, if we're using that athletic example, flip the switch into competitor mode, but then also turn it off. And I think often you see people struggle with that ability, where you know they either compete when you're not supposed to competing, or they go towards the like apathy kind of side of look. I'm just never gonna compete. I'm always gonna have self compassion or what have you, even if the situation demands it. So. It's a, it's a tough balance. But I will say what the research shows on this, and athletes, I've looked at it, and there are exceptions, but there was one study that looked at that found that elite athletes tend to have a better ability to turn that competitiveness both on and off. So they're not, you know, to use the hyper example, most aren't like Michael Jordan where they're always competing in everything. They know when to flip that switch and when to, when to turn it off.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm not good at this right now. Certainly not in an athletic context. I think in in a professional context, so doing our our work, I think I'm I'm okay at this. I could still be better, but um, athletically, I just think back to earlier in this year when I maxed out my my big three strength lifts for which I train. I think I've told this story before on the podcast. Uh, I was just like so content and at peace with myself, and it just truly, for the first time, maybe in my life, my performance did not matter at all. Whether I completely PR'd or whether I failed, I was going to truly, you know, maybe my happiness would have like swung by one out of 360 degrees. And I had like a fine showing, but my coach is like, you know, like, are you stoned? Did you like do some heroin before this? Like, is that, Or, or are you truly a Zen master now? Because Zen masters don't make good power lifters. And I sat with that for a long time, and I said, you know, maybe it's better to be a Zen master. And like, why should I care? But I do think to, to to the thesis of your book, your most recent book, I do think that there's real value in being able to turn on the switch and voluntarily going through those really hard things. Um, and that's hard. That's hard to do, particularly when it's in a hobby. You know, I'm not I'm not paid to to bench press and deadlift and squat. So, I'd like to experiment with that. And I have no idea where it's going to end. It could end in me continuing to train really hard and getting really good and going down the path of mastery. It could end in me being like, you know, I'm just going to walk my dog and spend 20, 20 minutes twice a week in the gym doing like the most basic uh, health and longevity work. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah,
1: that actually ties into one of mine, but I'll, I'll save it for, for after we're done with yours.
0: Okay, so then my next idea and, and my last thing that I'm really focusing on, and this includes you, but I'm, I'm putting you on the spot because we haven't talked about this. Oh. I, um, I meant to, to talk to you about this, but you were on your, your hiatus off the grid, so we couldn't. I think we do a really good job of not taking ourselves too seriously, but I think we could do a better job of taking the work seriously. And I think sometimes we undersell what we're doing and the potential impact that it can have and I think that we need to own that and do a better job of taking our work seriously. And, uh, you know, the context for this, or perhaps why I'm primed to have this insight is man, over the holidays, Steve, I got easily between DMs on Twitter, Instagram now and email, easily 200 people reached out just saying, like, what a profound impact, either a book that I or you wrote has had on them or this podcast or our newsletter, or even like our social media feeds. And those are just the DMs. A lot of people publicly, you know, tagged us. And people wrote me stories of opioid recovery, of career ending bike crash. And like, hey, groundedness got me through. Or do hard things like really gave me the confidence to, to, to take my fear along with me for the ride. And um, it's not to like say that, you know, We are like a big deal because outside of our own minds, we're probably not. But I think that we can treat ourselves like we're a slightly bigger deal than we do, and it would probably make our work better.
1: That's an interesting one. So I tend to, I mean, I get it, but I think there's power to not thinking you're much of a
0: big deal. No, no, not us, the work, right? The point is take the work seriously, but ourselves not so much. Yeah. So we're not a big deal, but the work. Like instead of, you know, sometimes I'll call you and be like, "Yeah, just like doing the same old thing, like playing the game." And I get that because it's like playing an uh, an MLB baseball season, right? 365 days a year, even if you're only doing 5 days a week, 275 days a year, whatever it is, putting content out, it can just feel like the regular season.
1: So, let me let me so but yeah. this this kind of comes back to the flipping the switch. I would say And maybe there's this is where there's nuance. Writing of our books, I would say you put the work pretty dang seriously, right? Sure. Yes. I mean, I mean the books are like we pour a lot into them, right? Yes. Writing a tweet on
0: Twitter, maybe not so much, right? Yes. And I I think that yeah, I agree with you. And you don't have endless energy. But the way that our publishing cycle works, we're really only writing a book for at most five to six months out of every two years, maybe even two and a half years. And I think we're both really good at getting serious during that process about the work. And I think that we could do a better job in the intervening processes like you know what what a business professional would call quote-unquote content marketing. I think like... Our trap is viewing it as content marketing. Yes, we want to push people to read our books because that is by far our best work, but some people just aren't going to. And I think that maybe where my shift could happen is thinking of the content just as content. Now, that doesn't mean that like every single social media post I'm going to throw my all into and I'm going to like live or die on, but it does mean that I could think of it a little bit less as marketing. Now, how might I be wrong is... Come on, Neil Postman's going to kill me. Amusing ourselves to death—that should be marketing, and the only goal should be to drive people to listen to or read the books, because that's where the best work is. And that's a valid argument. I just don't—I don't know if it's the right one.
1: Yeah, I mean, here's how I kind of think of it: is different layers. Where social media is like the eh, don't take the work too seriously. The newsletter is like okay, kind of take it seriously, and then book is like yeah, take it really seriously. And and maybe that's the wrong way to look at it, but to me, it's like and i i think there are some things that we definitely could take more seriously but to me it's also you like you want to have a little bit of that balance where it's kind of like play and to me social media although yeah it's used for marketing like a large thing of it and i know you use it similar is like playful like it's like hey i'm having this idea i haven't really thought it through but like <clears throat> let's go throw it out on twitter and see what happens you know and then something happens and sometimes it's good and you're like, oh, okay, I should expand off that and explore that and blah, blah, blah. And I think there's something to the kind of like innocent, playful nature that separates it from if we took it so seriously, then what we would do is probably we'd be like, we need to refine these ideas. We need to look at the metrics and nail these and make sure the content is great and expanding and going viral or whatever it is to reach as many people. And I think, yes, there are certain cases where we should do that better. But I also think that, like you know, there's some some value towards that expiration phase, that playful phase, which ultimately I think allows us to do the real work better because it sets the stage for exploring ideas which get refined in book writing or whatever have you writing.
0: I, I don't disagree with that one bit. Maybe it's just for certain elements, you know, we could ratchet up the the seriousness on game 87 in the 162 game season, just a little bit more at times. Um, And I also wonder, like the not taking ourselves too seriously, we're very, very good at that for anyone that (laughs) listens to this podcast or or is in Patreon or what have you. Um, I just don't want that to become a defense mechanism for us, like not trying to leave our biggest mark, you know, because we talk about this all the time. Where it's like the cool kids that don't try their hardest in gym class because like they're scared that they might lose. And and I'm not saying we do this, but I think there's a risk to being so holding everything so lightly that it like shields you from like really going all in. Now, does that mean that we should attach our identity to what we do completely? Of course not. That's not healthy. Um, but yeah, maybe we just push ourselves to to be a little bit more serious about the whole enterprise. I don't know. Like I said, I, I meant to call you about this, but you were on your your offline period. So we're talking about this uh, live. This is completely unscripted. However, in the spirit of taking the work seriously, my other two ideas were scripted. I thought those through. So I took it sixty six percent seriously.
1: Well, uh, well, you know that's a step up on this podcast. So we're we're doing it. Maybe you know, maybe the podcast is the area we could take more seriously,
0: Brad. I don't know, our listeners seem to like it. We we do a pretty good job. And I actually, in all seriousness, I think that, huh, we're using the word serious a lot. I think that um, the podcast is the the thing that is, like taking it seriously just means showing up and being present. I mean, we know this. When we've tried to script episodes, we just wind up laughing at each other and deleting those episodes. So I think we're doing all right with the podcast. Okay, yeah, we won't release
1: those, the the ones that went off the rails. Okay, well, that sounds good. Well, I'll quickly go through three ideas that I was thinking. Similar to Brad, at the end of the year, I have a kind of reflection period. I just go through my notebooks and my notes from the year and say, hey, what's stuck out? What do I want to kind of remember and wrestle with going forward? Um, one ties into similar uh, something similar that Brad talked about, and I call it kind of the, the, the rut of competence. Meaning, like, you're pretty good at something, (laughs) and it just becomes like second nature. And it becomes like, hey, I can sit down and write a pretty dang good newsletter or whatever have you. You know, I can go out and run X workout and do it pretty well, and you don't have to think too much about it. So it stops, you know, kind of, it's almost like you can go through the motions if you want to. Um, but I think there's some like danger in that, so I think all the time about, or I'm I'm really wrestling with how do I make sure that I include things in my life that kind of like nudge me out or dislodge me from that rut of competence, just so that I can like pop my head above water and be like, oh okay, this is what's going on around here, or this is kind of exploration phase. So to use the athletic analogy, one that I've used before is if I'm training for something and running, you know, 99% of the workouts are, you know, the hard workouts are challenging but manageable, right? But every once in a while, you want to go see God because you want to see what you're made of and like shift that perspective and try and nudge you out of like that kind of rut. And what I've been thinking of is, well, what are those quote unquote see God workouts for the other things in life that shift your perspective? You now, what is that for writing? What is that for living everyday experiences? Maybe one of those is that digital detox because it nudges you out of that norm of, you know, the of digital life that has kind of taken over our modern world. So there's my first idea.
0: Yeah. It's I, what I'm hearing there is, um, there's true novelty and there's false novelty. I'm making this up as I go. So, always true novelty, we don't take ourselves too seriously, perhaps that's why. <laughs> true novelty, or what I'm going to call true novelty, is doing like having an experience that really like kind of jolts you out of your your zone of comfortable competence. And fake novelty is reading 19 articles on the internet, staying up to date on all the latest good Twitter threads so on and so forth. That's like candy novelty versus brown rice novelty. And what I hear you say is that you think that injecting some more brown rice novelty into your life could be helpful at this time. Yes, I think that's a good
1: good uh, analogy to use.
0: Yeah, well, we're going to not bury the lead because it was announced yesterday by Steve publicly. Um, you're going to get plenty of brown rice novelty in... <laughs> In, in early summer in June this year, more than you could ever imagine. So my advice to you would be to just kind of sit in the comfortable, competent zone until that baby's born, and um, you'll, you'll have a year's worth of novelty and more in the first few weeks, Steve.
1: There we go. Uh, a baby will uh, cure all seeking out of seeing God mm-hmm. moments, so that's good to know. All right. Well, well.
0: Now that we've got the big announcement out, so what you should expect—he didn't is- even announce it. Steve, Steve, and his wonderful wife Hillary are pregnant, and will be having a baby in in June. That's so right. It's a hearty congratulations from everyone listening. I know that they're thinking the same thing. Which so you—you uh, wrote the book, do hard things. Well, <laughs> the test is coming up.
1: Well, you know, I practice what I preach. I don't shy away from things. So here, we, here we go. Um, this will also give Brad and I more conversations on parenting as, we fig- as I figure it out on the fly. So expect that, parents. Um, all right, so we'll go for number two idea I've been kind of wrestling with. Um, and maybe this has, has, uh, it ties into moving on to different phases in life. Idea I've been wrestling with. Our tools will change. How do we adapt? And I'm going to give the running analogy again. Is when you're young, you have lots of speed as a runner. It comes naturally, right? When you're young, you're fast. As you age, that speed goes away a little bit. But you have experience and you have endurance because endurance takes longer. It takes years and years and years to develop. So if you, if you, you know, as a 37-year-old or whatever... If you try to race as you did as a 20-year-old or run or train as you did as a 20-year-old, it will fail spectacularly. If you expect that your tools have changed and then modify your training, racing, etc. to now, you know, support those tools, then you're going to still perform pretty pretty dang well and perhaps better, for instance, in the longer events as you age and take advantage of those tools change. I think about that a lot, you know, in my in my working life as i am in my late 30s now as maybe my kind of single minded focus of just being able to sit down forget about all distractions and just crank something out kind of fades a little bit and hopefully as my wisdom and all that good stuff increases like how to adapt or make sure i'm adapting with with my changing tools
0: yeah, I, I, I like that. Um, it's so interesting because this is an area where we're behind the scenes inside baseball. We are so different where I feel like you already are like so much more um, loose and by the seat of your pants to like my neuroticism. So I'm a little bit nervous when you say like, you know, sit down and no longer be able to single-mindedly focus. I'm, I'm freaking out here. I'm like, uh-oh. Um, well, what I mean by that, and I'll clarify, it's not being
1: neurotic, but it's the fact that, for instance, when I wrote my first book, Science of Running, I could literally be like, okay, I'm going to sit at the kitchen table and just write for four hours and just crank this thing through. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think as you know, I could, I could not write that book in the same way now.
0: Oh yeah. It's the, I mean, it, and, and it will just get harder for you. Um, yeah. Is your life gets more complex with a kid? Like the example that I have comes from this morning. I was starting on a big writing project. It's a a chapter of something that I hope becomes a book in the far off future. And I was just like in the groove and I had to drive Theo to school. (laughs) And it sucks. Like the whole way to school, my mind is like trying to hold on to ideas, but then I'm not present for him. And then I like forget the ideas anyways and I come back. And now it's 40 minutes later, and should I do my physical practice for the day, or should I try to like, re-get into the mode of writing, when in the past, it's easy. You just write until there's nothing left, and then you go exercise. Um, I think that a lot of that attachment to being in the groove and being in the zone is just that, an attachment. And I think you learn to overcome it and to re-get into the zone. And obviously, there's a lot of benefit in having the complexity of a child in your life, and I think it outweighs the cost. However, I will say there's a time and a place to go to a cabin and um, not have those distractions. It's just that you're no longer living your life in that cabin. Um, Speaking of cabins, it's like maybe that's why Walden wrote Thoreau the way that he did, because he didn't have these other responsibilities at the time, at least not that I'm aware of. Um, Yet there are so many people that do have super rich and complex lives that, that give them So much grist for the mill in their work, and to be clear, I'm being, I'm trying to be, and I I hope I'm, I'm not sounding um, judgmental. Whether you're single, whether you're in a partnership, whether you've got zero kids, whether you've got six kids, like there's no right or wrong way, and I think that's why Steve said, like the tools change. Um, So as life changes, the tools change, and I think what you're saying is that like a tool that you're going to have to work with here is. the ability to be really disciplined about when you're really single-mindedly focused and, and in, and then to be able to shift out and then to shift back in again in a way that perhaps you haven't in the past.
1: Yes, exactly. And yeah, I think it's, it's
0: very challenging.
1: And I think there's just something to awareness of, like as your tools shift. Because, for instance, in the in the running world, we will use the examples. You see people who just can't accept that they don't have the speed that they used to, and they just train like idiots, and then they get injured, burnout, all that stuff. So,
0: yeah, I think you know, in my experience, Steve, where I where I feel this the most, and of course, it it directly ties to the the digital sabbath that I um, I'm going to implement this year. It's just gut wrenching when your kid is trying to talk to you about something that is mildly boring, and you're kind of on your phone and you're doing the whole like, yeah, yeah, like that's interesting. Yeah. And then your kid just walks away from you. (laughs) And that's happened maybe like six times in the last two months to me. And each one of those times, like I'm getting sad talking about it, it's just like a dagger. Like through your heart and into your gut, Um, and that gets at like this point of like in the past, like yeah, like you have an idea, you can jot it down or text it to a friend or something, and the cost is nothing and the benefit is huge. You capture that idea, you keep the momentum going. But with a kid, the 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 kid walking like that is a for me at least, I experience that as a severe cost and price to pay. So I think it's really good that you're thinking about this as you head into um, fatherhood.
1: All right, so let's get into the last one, which may tie into everything. Um, last idea I've been thinking a lot about is the importance of being bad at something. Mm. And and the reason I say this is when you're younger, when you're developing, like you're bad at a lot of things, <laughs> but you like you know it's just natural you're a newbie you're a novice at so many things so you struggle and you you have to deal with failure a lot and you're just like okay this sucks but i have to i have to figure it out and then as as you get older as you develop as you find your niches like you tend to do more and more things that you're relatively good at because like that's just how expertise works so we write a lot more and we might not be the best writers, but we're relatively good at it. So we can figure it out. Or, you know, even this podcast, we might not be the best podcasters, but we're relatively good at it or decent at it now. So it's not this huge challenge, what have you. And I think we just shy away from learning new things or challenging our, ourselves in ways um, by doing things that we're bad at. And this really kind of came to fruition. In my mind, this year, as I moved from a very long layoff due to injury to like getting back in shape and being healthy for the first time in a while and be like, okay, I'm going to raise my mileage and do some harder workouts. And, you know, for a very brief time, I got to reflect and re experience what it was like to be a beginner because, you know, the first couple of runs and workouts weren't very pretty. Um, and it just reminds you, like, you know, and I had that same the same experience as a beginner like i remember the first kind of somewhat hard workout i did i was like my mind is blaring at me to stop even though i know i'm 100% okay and this is slow and i'm not actually breathing that hard but it had been just so long since i'd done something hard uh that my mind went there and it just really reminded me of like oh okay there's value to doing stuff that we're bad at how do i keep that in place as i uh you know as I age and, and kind of coming back to what you mentioned earlier, that kind of like contentment versus progress. I really think progress is
0: often doing stuff that you kind of suck at. So this is a really, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A really timely topic that you brought up for for me too, because I have been feeling similarly and I'm like allergic to, to being a beginner. And it's very typical, right? Like you hit adulthood, You find the things you're good at, you do them. So I I realized this and I love music. And growing up, like I was just completely focused on sports. So I didn't play music, you know, beyond like, I don't know, the the middle school band, maybe. And then for me it was just basketball and football. So I want to learn how to play the harmonica. And I told this to you like a couple weeks ago, maybe even a month ago now. And I remember you were like exploring, you know, the chat GPT-3 and all the the new cool AI tools, or or cool or terrifying, or maybe both, depends on how you view them. And you're like, yeah, I'll learn those things and be bad at those. And and you can learn harmonica. And I looked into harmonica. They're not expensive. There's a harmonica teacher where I live. It's a relatively easier instrument to learn. But then Caitlin, my wiser half, is like, all this sounds great, but like, are you actually going to do it? And I can't say yes. And the reason isn't because I'm scared to be bad. The reason is because there's just not enough time. So being bad at harmonica would encroach on time for mastery at, first off, what we do professionally that I want to take more seriously, our work, our writing, our coaching, our, our, our thinking in public. And number two, my strength training, which is like my other domain of mastery. So how like I don't? It, it, are these two things feel like they're in juxtaposition? Because right now I can't find time to sit and be bad at the harmonica and practice and try to learn a new skill.
1: Yeah, I mean that's the kind of trade-off. Um, but I do think there's like there's value in in doing something. Maybe it's not the harmonica. Maybe it's something more tangential and related. And maybe we've done this so. I'll give the example. I would say this
0: podcast we were really bad at for a long time. Yeah,
1: I was going to say the podcast. I'd also say Instagram we were horrible at. You know?
0: Um, yeah, and then then I reached out to my boy Ben Meir. Ben, if you're listening, thank you. He gave us some really good advice <laughs> and now we're pretty good at in Instagram.
1: So, but and maybe that's what it that's the solution is do things you're bad at that kind of tangentially are related to the things you that you're trying to master and that's a way to kind of satisfy both worlds. But you know, it gets to another thing that I've I've kind of thought about as well is that um the internet has kind of killed hobbies. And maybe there's some worthwhile to making a harmonica playing or whatever you want as a hobby because not for any sense of whatever, you know, progress or mastery or or what have you, but that, you know, Research shows that hobbies are pretty good because they allow you to kind of dabble and explore in a place that you wouldn't dabble and explore. But I feel uh, like
0: I get that in
1: strength training and in parenting and in training a dog. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I would say hobbies are probably most important once your kids are gone off to college. So So maybe harmonica
0: is for for later in life. That's but, but, but then wouldn't I want to start it now where there's more plasticity? So it's there later, and maybe it's like a very light touch harmonica. Caitlin's gonna kill me. I got a burner phone, I'm gonna buy a record player, I'm gonna come home with an $80 harmonica and some private lessons. Um, so I, I better be careful, but um, yeah, I, I mean, listen, I don't think we're gonna like say what's right or wrong, what's good or bad. That's kind of not our MO on most things. I think the really valid point that you brought up is the the benefit of being bad at something. And I think equally valid for listeners and for ourselves to think through is if there was infinite time and space, then yeah, everyone should have a hobby that they're bad at. But if things are pretty full and you're like on a really good trajectory in one area, does it make sense to take away from that to go be bad at something? You know, I always come back to my favorite example, Catalan Carrico of the mRNA vaccines. I'm really glad she didn't spend a couple hours a week on the harmonica.
1: But you know, there's that research that shows that Nobel laureates are more likely to have a hobby than you know people. But who I, don't but I make guess it. what
0: I'm saying is, in our in our own lives, we do have hobbies. Yes, I, I mean, know. you run 80 miles a week. I spend eight hours in the gym. We I'm, both have dogs. Like, I guess I'm, what I'm saying is, <laughs> we're. I think we're, we're. I think we already score higher on the hobby. And then most people that are trying to be world class at what they do.
1: That is true. So what we really need to worry about is once I can no longer run and you can no longer lift a lift a weight, what do we have to do? Yeah, there you go. So then, maybe, then we maybe that's then then we like make that. the Brad and Steve harmonica band and watch out, world. It's gonna be horrible. <laughs>
0: Oh man. All right. I don't know how we got here, but we did. Um, the Brad and Steve harmonica band. Um, if y'all keep listening to our podcast and supporting our work, hopefully we won't get there for a very long time. Um, but when we do, you, (laughs) you probably won't find us on Spotify or wherever (laughs) you get your music. So enjoy us, enjoy us while you have it. Um, Listen, in all seriousness, we really appreciate you, uh, our listeners, our community, those that really care about sustainable excellence and um, see the value in what we do, and also challenge us and question us. You can always find us on Twitter, at B Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus, and also on Instagram, at Brad Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And um, we'll catch you next week. We Unless the schedule changes, which we don't anticipate it does, we've got a really great episode coming up next week. It's part of a two-part series, a long-form interview with probably one of the greatest coaches alive across any discipline. Um, I think that's defensible, Steve. You could tell me, you know, a little bit more, but just in terms of like Olympic medalist and world champion medals, I'm sure there aren't too many coaches that have more. And um, we go really deep on working with and helping people get to the next level. Uh, It was fascinating. And we'll have that for you all next week.